Rachel Needle from Talking With Tech. And I'm Chris Bouguet from Talking With Tech. We have a podcast dedicated to augmentative and alternative communication, all things related to helping kids with complex communication needs. If you have a passion for helping people with language disabilities, this is the show for you. Each episode features an interview or a roundtable discussion on a topic related to augmentative communication and helping people with language disabilities. And we're really passionate about giving practical strategies to clinicians working in the field who are working with children or adults, anything related to AAC. So you can look us up on iTunes or you can find us on Facebook. We've got a group over there or check out our website at bit.ly slash TWT podcast. Please join our community of professionals that are working to ensure that everyone can say whatever they want to say, however they want to say it. Please listen carefully. What is communication? An essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster another. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. Communication is a lifeline. It's just connection with other people. Connecting people in terms of ideas, thoughts, or needs. Draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families without it being lost. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to episode 85 of the Speech Science Podcast. We are proud members of the Exceptional Podcast Network. I'm Matt Hot, joined in the Midwest by Michelle Wintering. Hi, Matt. I know we've had this debate, actually, if it's the South or the Midwest, because I'm in well, Kentucky. Kentucky is kind of the middle of nowhere. So <laughs> I love Kentucky. I'm only two hours south of you, sir. <laughs> I know. That's what I mean. It's like kind of in the middle of everywhere I want to go. It's I like Kentucky, but I don't know. And in a state that I do <laughs> know is sort of on the East Coast, Michael McLeod. What's up, buddy? How are you? It is the East Coast, right? In, in Pennsylvania? Yeah, it definitely is. Oh, guys, I'm so excited to be back on air. And today was an exciting day. I had tech training at the new school and they gave me a Google Chromebook. And I want you guys to know that officially I feel old because I didn't know how to use my Google Chromebook out of the box. Oh, look at that, Matt. You had to do some problem solving. Was it pretty easy setup though? Yeah, it was nice. It was, they, they, you know, so if you work in schools, you might know like Blackboard and Mastercraft and Dazzle and IEP Anywhere and kind of a, a crash course on how to use all of that with the Google Chromebook. And I'll be honest, five years ago, I feel like you could have handed me any technology and I would have been able to go off to the races with it. They handed me this Google Chromebook and then I got confused when I could hold it like a tablet. And I'm sure I felt like my dad when I give him new technology and I look at it and have to take a few minutes before I go, I need help. <laughs> you could just ask your, what is he, six-year-old son? Oh, you know what was cute though the other I'm day? I'm just saying they figure it out real quick. <laughs> he was washing tomatoes in the sink. So I'm glad that he knows how to do that and maybe not run my Google Chromebook. Fair enough. Michelle, we'll start with you. What has baby speech science done this week? Well, he is still refusing to let go when he walks around holding on to things. So he's not walking independently yet, but he's using probably four or five different signs now because I've been signing with him a lot. And um, he's just fun. One years old is a fun age, a challenging age, but a fun age. 
<laughs> wait till he's two and you want to strangle him for screaming at you for four hours and not knowing what he wants yeah, that that happens now too <laughs> <laughs> but um then then adjusting for him and for me with him in daycare while i'm working um and speaking of learning technology every time you start a new job right the documentation system is different and that's always mm -hmm. been the biggest challenge for me starting a new job, even though I think I'm pretty decent at figuring it out. But sometimes documentation systems are not intuitive. What are you using over there? Do you know? Oh, this one's a hospital-based one. It's Meditech. I've not heard that one. Mm -hmm. I've used Kasamba, and I thought that was nice until they updated it, and then I wanted to strangle The it. ones in the hospitals I know are Meditech and Epic, but I know there's others. And then in my last two clinics, privately owned ones that were just rehab clinics yeah we used clinic source which was specific to rehab but meditech and epic and some of the other big ones are whole programs that are meant for the whole hospital michael you are hopefully maybe baby free in philadelphia what system do you guys use in your private maybe practice baby free. uh various we really work with each uh each individual family to really figure out what what works best for them mm -hmm. So we really, um, you know, certain families want handwritten notes, certain families want, uh, you know, things typed up. So we really, uh, we tailor to the individual family for, for those specific needs. Man, private practice sounds so much more fun. Uh, it, it certainly has its ups and downs. It definitely does. It's like, oh, you want a handwritten note? I will handwrite you a note right here. Like private pra or like home healthcare, they're like, uh, can you do this 18 step checkbox? And then if you don't do it right, we're not going to tell you. And them being the computer system, not going to tell you what you did wrong until you <clears throat> second check everything before you can sign it. Oh, it's taking you two hours. Sorry. Aww. Yeah, that's, that sounds that sounds bad. That sounds really bad. <laughs> now you also, I know you've said before, Mike, with private practice, you do provide super bills to your families. Is that right? Yes, I do. Yep. So that is just where you're providing documentation and the codes to for them to submit to insurance. Exactly. Yes, where they're able to uh, potentially receive some out of network benefits by by submitting a paid receipt. Uh, to their uh, to their insurance and can retroactively get paid back. Got it. Yep. Very cool. See, you make private practice seem easy, and I know from your Facebook and our conversations before that you are probably one of the hardest working people that I know to keep that private practice running. But like, man, you describe it, and it makes me want to run out tomorrow and start a private practice out of my backyard. Well, uh, us SLPs are really capable of doing anything. So that's a, that's, that's a real fact. So we, we work so hard in this graduate program and all the, all the prerequisites and bachelors we have to do in our externships. And, uh, we're really, you know, sometimes we kind of blend in with all the other people, but, uh, I think us SLPs are shoulders above everybody else. Well, I'm a type B person, so <laughs> I don't think I can do that. <laughs> No, no you're type, I you're think type you A. could. You you have enough middle ground on that, Matt. You are not strictly type B. Oh, I am. I I put up a very good facade. I'm that extroverted introvert, I guess you could say. But we want to hear from you at home before we get too far. Make sure you head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. 
And from there, you can find all of our previous episodes. Uh, also, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash speech science podcast. And we want to hear from you. So this is where you interact. So get out your cell phone, 614-681-1798. Save that thing because you can text us during the show or give us a phone call and leave us a voicemail or email us speech science podcast at gmail.com. Or if you love the social media side, someone hit them with the hashtag. Hashtag SSPod on Instagram. And Twitter. And I still have to give you the Twitter username and password. I thought you were running the Twitter. Matt. I That's am. You. And I just post updates every now and then and then retweet people. Perfect. That's all I do. Hey, on today's episode, Michelle, you talked to a pediatric dietitian. I did. Yeah. Um, gosh, a couple months ago now. But I know we've been saving that interview. Martha Firstel, she's in Tucson, Arizona, and she is a she's worked in different settings, but she's a pediatric dietitian, specifically in the NICU at a hospital in Tucson, and works hand in hand with a lot of speech therapists, especially with the itty bitty babies and feeding. So she was great to talk to. I learned a lot talking to her, and I think it's pretty cool to learn from kind of our sister professions who we don't necessarily know a whole lot about, but we're gonna see in different facilities that we work in. That's pretty awesome. Also today, if you were to lose your hearing, which voice would you want in your head as your last voice? Also, we're going to look at a study about the effectiveness of a classroom vocabulary intervention and an audiologist who has decided to take the big step into uh, politics. But I figured we'd start off with the big article, Michelle, you brought us to our attention, but has been blown up all over Facebook. ASHA is looking to develop a new certification program for... SLPAs. I have no experience with the SLPAs because here in Ohio, we don't have any. Well, I was very excited to see this because as most of the listeners have heard, Matt and I, we went to grad school together and correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, but the only thing I remember hearing about SLPAs was probably one sentence which said, some states have SLPAs, we don't. And that's it. Yep, I got in trouble on a Facebook group because I said, quote, why would you stop at an assistant? And then I was re-educated very quickly. And I do apologize for that statement because that was Matt Hot a couple years ago. And I didn't understand the difference in assistants versus SLPs because, like you said, we don't have them in the state. Mm -hmm. And it really just is a state-by-state licensure right now. That's my understanding. Um, I can only speak to where I've lived. So Ohio does not license them. Um, Colorado does, but I did not run into them a whole lot when I lived out there. In Texas, they're utilized everywhere, um, especially in the schools and in privately owned clinics. I wouldn't say the hospitals as much just because of the heavy um, medical specialization that not even all SLPs are comfortable with. But, um, but it does depend on the state, and I worked with some incredible SLPAs, and most of them had a bachelor's in speech or a related field and then did clinical hours to obtain that state licensure. But I think it would give some validity to, um, to the career of an SLPA because you're going to have the backing of a certificate from ASHA now, and it would also allow them to hopefully... Um, more easily maybe transfer between states because they're pretty limited as to what states they're allowed to work in right now. Um, and then they have different credentials required 
in different states, depending on what that licensing board requires. So having that national one. And I'm not an SLPA, so I'd love to hear from any listeners that are. <laughs> but my-, um, my other thought, too, is for insurance reimbursement. I know there are insurances that will not reimburse for services provided by assistance. And I wonder if that might change if there is an ASHA certificate. Michael, does PA have assistance? Uh, I believe it does. Uh, from what I've read, it's uh, quite big uh, out here, but I myself have not encountered that in my time here. I know here in Ohio, when you're talking about the the Medicaid changing or whatever with paying of the assistance, I think there was a deal with the OTs and PTs where they weren't paying as much or they didn't pay for the assistants doing it. And a lot of assistants lost their jobs because the school district decided that they'd rather pay a a full-time OT or PT. Here's my concern about assistance. And this is again, coming from somebody that works in a state that doesn't have an assistant. We're already either just making enough or underpaid for our services based off of what you would look at in the other rest of the medical field. Right now we are in a position where we are wanted for jobs. We could pretty much move anywhere we want to get jobs and and find jobs. Usually. I mean, if you want to work in Columbus, Ohio, you might have to work on the outskirts of Columbus because everyone wants to be there. uh, At least here in Ohio with ASHA credentialing assistance. It worries me that in States like Ohio, we're going to allow assistance come in and then that's going to cut down on jobs or it's going to cut down on pay because if I can pay an assistant at 70% of what I can pay a SLP, well, that SLP job is now going to get harder to pay or find and there's going to be more competition for the limited number of SLP jobs. And I mean, I think I understand where you're coming from. Um, So I'm very selfish. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm curious if states like Ohio who don't currently license them will even bother licensing them. Like, is it, are they going to change that because ASHA decides to certify them? I don't know. That's a great question to ask. But, I could call um, Greg Thornton, but I think he's asleep right now. Oh, Greg true. Thornton he's, is the, pres- is the uh, executive director of the Ohio uh, Speech Board. But I do think it does give validity to people who have chosen that career path. And... Um, you know, PTAs and CODAs, COTAs are a lot more common, I guess. And I heard this analogy once that an assistant is supposed to be, you know, say you have that large caseload, you know, there could be a benefit as well to having an assistant, Matt. If you had an assistant working at your school, now you as an SLP could narrow down your treatment caseload and basically have extra arms. Like you're still approving that SLPA's treatments, but could that be a benefit to you? I don't know. It just, it totally depends. And it depends on school districts. It depends on all different settings. But um, the analogy I heard was that an assistant is really supposed to be an extension of the SLP. My only Because counter, they're not diagnosing. My only counter to that would be to contact your senators and congresspeople in your state to have them change the law so that your caseload isn't crazy and out of control like it is in Indiana or Arizona or couple other states that I don't know, but I've heard horror stories of 150, 200 uh, kids. And mm-hmm. then That's you don't insane. need assistance. What'd you say, Mike? That's insane. Yeah, I was on Facebook on one of the groups, and I want to say it was 
one of the plain states. So Montana, maybe. And someone was saying that she had almost 200 kids with assistance. So she was in charge of the 200 kids, but the assistants were seeing those children. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, what's the jobs like out in Pennsylvania if you guys have assistance? Um, that's a the the vast majority of the jobs out here seem to be like uh, contracting jobs, like 1099 contracting jobs. Uh, so I think that's that's what I see when I log on to like Indeed and things like that. So uh, I think I, SLPAs are certainly. I don't think they're allowed to do all of the treatment themselves. I think they're allowed to help with paperwork and therapy planning and things like that but in terms of the actual treatment i think you need to be a uh a ccc oh okay and so that is yeah. in pennsylvania mm-hmm. yeah and everyone is different right now because i know in texas they absolutely do treatment they can't diagnose and they can't change plans of care or write goals but they can help track goals and um and do treatments but then then there's i i don't know the exact divide but um they don't have training on dysphagia Right. And I don't think they have training on fluency. So there are certain things that they're unable to treat. But the big thing is they can't diagnose. Hmm. I mean, I see the point of SLPAs. And I'm sure that if I worked with an SLPA, my opinion would be changed completely. But I just look at it from the selfish side of how does this affect my checkbook and bank account? And I see the writing on the wall that if... ASHA gives the credentialing to the SLPAs in 10, 20 years, right? As I'm looking to get out of the field, there may be more SLPAs than SLPs, and, and that could affect our pay. I don't know. Yeah, I, I that mean, sounds very selfish, that, and I'm okay with that. Ed, that's okay. And I had no experience <laughs> with them before working with assistance in Texas. And I think that there that that's the same argument i remember hearing from friends in the medical field when they first introduced physician assistants well that's a good point still we still need doctors and we still i love my pa by the way just see there you go okay all right maybe i'm just an idiot i'll i'll take that no 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 i mean i think it obviously is being looked at by asha and i'll ask i'll ask the business owner in the room michael What's up? If you had the choice and SLPAs were uh, san- a- sanctioned by ASHA and the rule changed that they could do treatment in, P- in Pennsylvania, would you hire an SLPA at 70, 75% or would you pay a SLP at the 100% rate, whatever that would be? I would pay the SLP ah! at, the, at, the at the 100% rate. Michael not taking my totally misleading and drawn out question and ah, prove me wrong. All right. hundred percent. When it's outpatient private therapy, you got to go with the, uh, with the skilled therapist. Yeah, fair enough. Yep. That what makes it- sense to me. Cause you're paying for almost a, um, I mean, they're paying a premium out of pocket. For did you, therapy. did you guys see the, the thing that blew up on Facebook about speech therapy and mm, the SLPs? So I guess there was an SLP that was selling shirts that just said, I'm a speech therapist or I'm a speech therapist. Ask me or speech therapist make you talk. Something that said basically made it look like the person that's wearing it was a speech therapist. And there was a big hubbubaloo about allowing SLPAs to buy the shirt 
because the other SLPs did not feel it was right that an SLPA would wear a shirt that said, I'm a speech therapist. But they are. I right? mean, they're not speech-language pathologists. That, that they're the they're doing therapy. <laughs> I was like, I was like about to comment, and I think we talked about it last week, where I wrote it out, and I went, Control-Alt-Delete. <laughs> yep, yep, just Control-Alt-Delete. I'm just going to get out of that one. <laughs> I really want to hear from someone who is an SLPA, or maybe is an SLP who used to work as an SLPA. And I know some of them are listening, because some of them were co-workers of mine in Texas. And if so, you think I'm an idiot, it's okay. You can say I'm an idiot. 614-681-1798, or email speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com, or directly to Michael and Michelle hashtag SS pod. I feel like the old man on the podcast where I've already admitted like, no, I don't check Instagram because I don't know how that works. I don't know. You've got some credit in your corner though, because you started a podcast. So I, I opened up a microphone and said, I'm talking now. <laughs> <laughs> I still say that the power to make changes is in the legislative body. And that is the transition I'm going to use to, to talk about this article. <laughs> article out of the ASHA leader. An audiologist applied her communication skills to be a political career. Uh, I think this is awesome. I think that any time that we can step out of our roles as an SLP, as an audio audiologist, as an SLPA, or anyone that works in the therapies, and become the person that's making rules and changes in your state, I think that's awesome. Uh, this is Deanna Frazier. Uh, she's an audiologist. She's also a member of the Kentucky House of Representatives, representing District 81. Um, guys, do you have any ounce of you that wants to be a, po a politician? I mean, Matt, uh, you, you definitely asked us this before, and I want to know when you're running for office. Uh, I'm bouncing back the question to you. Michael, I'll let you answer before I do. I'll do it if you be my, my running mate. So funny enough that you say that. I have spearheaded a thing here in Ohio that we are working on for school SLPs to change the law here in Ohio. At least I'm going to start investigating how we do that. That currently it says school-based SLPs can have 80 um, students on their caseload at one time. And I am going to do my best to try to get that numbered back down to equal with PTs and OTs at 50. So I am dipping my toe in the political realm, not necessarily to run, but to be there. That's fascinating. So PTs and OTs, it's only 50 in Ohio. Yep. But uh, SLPs are allowed um, 50 or Have 80. Given, I'm sorry, 80. Do you know the reasoning for that? That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm trying to investigate, to be honest. I don't know. I really don't know. I distracted from the article, but back to our audiologist who is already in politics Deanna in Frazier. the state I'm living in. I mean, I think it's great. She says she ran for political office and won when she was elected last November. I am trying to figure out where District 81 is. If it's my district, I'm going to laugh. Uh, let's see. You guys talk while I read. All right. Michael, would you run for, like, legit, would you run for political office? Yeah, why not? I would try it There's out. There's a lot of reasons why not. That's why I was asking. 
<laughs> no, I would do it. I would, I would definitely do it. I think it would be fun. I think it'd be interesting. I, I feel like I basically do that now anyway, in terms of like outreach and marketing and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I would definitely do that. I would, yeah, I'd be happy to do it if, uh, if I had the opportunity. Sure. I'm hesitant to, but I feel like even our discussions about it, Matt, have made me more, more open to it that I would consider it if the opportunity was there. Right now, I haven't lived somewhere long enough that I would feel comfortable running for office there. I mean, in a couple of weeks, we have an interview that I was able to do uh, with the Arizona State Superintendent, and she was an SLP, uh, uh, Kathy Hoffman. She was an SLP that stepped down of her role as an SLP and traveled the state and got some votes and, and won. Wasn't Elizabeth Warren an, an SLP? Uh, undergrad. Undergrad SLP. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. That counts. That counts. Uh, like, I think she went for communication disorders and then uh, became a politician and now running for president. Found it, guys. District 81, Representative Republican Deanna Frazier, uh, Madison County. Are you near Madison County, Michelle? You know, I'm going to have to look at a map of Kentucky and figure that out. It's near Richmond? I'm in Hardin County. It's the home of Eastern Kentucky University. Meade County. Nope. I'm not Eastern Kentucky. Sorry. <laughs> But still, you know what? I, I'm more I do it. I'm like, oh, maybe I should do local township and maybe become something local or statey because we need somebody that cares about our kids and cares about what we do in the therapy realm. And I really feel like most of the people that are elected have no idea what we do. I agree with that. Nobody has any idea. That's true. Even even a lot of the parents we work with have no idea what we do. Or teachers. You or mean teachers. you do more than work on stuttering in ours? exactly you know true story i call patients to schedule for home health care and i'm not picking on any of my patients but i'll say hey i'm you know i'm matt from blank and i'm the speech and language pathologist and they're like i talk fine i'm yep. like well so you know how you choke i'm supposed to help with that and they're like oh yeah i'm waiting for the guy that does that to call me and i'm like i'm that guy and the person will always be like, like that's me why don't you lead with that and i'm like well because you don't want to hear me say i'm the speech language memory cognition executive functioning dysphagia pathologist exactly well said i wish oh. you would introduce yourself as that when you call someone all right. in one breath man <gasps> Coming up after the break, <laughs> what you say? Everything's about language. Everything's about language. Funny you say that. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about the effectiveness of classroom vocabulary intervention, and we're going to talk about which voice would you like to hear if it was the last voice you could ever hear before going deaf. But before we do that, we want to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com, and from there, Text us 614-681-1798 or call us on the same number 614-681-1798 or email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Someone tell them how to find us on the social media. Hashtag SSPod. My mic was muted. Sorry. <laughs> what is our Instagram account, by the way? Speech underscore science. There we go. Or speech science PC on Twitter. I do know that. Oh, podcast. Got yeah, it. see, peace. not politically correct, podcast. All right, we'll be right back. You're listening to Speech Science. Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. 
I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. This is Michelle, and you are listening to Speech Science, and today I have the opportunity to sit down with a dietitian friend of mine. She lives in Tucson, Arizona. Her name is Martha Firstel. Firstel, I said that right, correct? All right, Martha Firstel, and um, I also knew her before her last name was Firstel, so I just about messed that up again, but (laughs) Martha Firstel, she has a master's degree, she is an RD, so that's a registered dietitian, and LD, which is a licensed dietitian. So Martha, if you can, first off, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So I am, as you said, a dietitian. Um, I have been a dietitian. It'll be 10 years in September. Um, I started out, as all dietitians do, um, getting a bachelor's degree. Um, Mine is in food science and human nutrition. But every dietitian's in some sort of foods and nutrition type realm. Um, And then I went on and got a master's degree in foods and nutrition. Um, And my master's um, was combined with my internship, which to be a dietitian, you have to do an internship that is um, accredited and organized through our governing body, as it were. Um, So mine was combined with my master's degree. And after that, I started working as a dietitian. I moved to Denver, Colorado and um, worked for WIC, the program for women, infants, and children um, as a dietitian. And uh, then I worked in dialysis with adults for several years. Then I moved into dialysis with children and other types of kidney diseases and little little kiddos. Um, And pretty much have been working in pediatrics more or less since then. Um, Now I work in Tucson at Tucson Medical Center um, in the neonatal intensive care unit. So with the little tiny babies um, dealing with their nutrition and growth and vitamins and minerals and all that kind of fun stuff. That's awesome. You've had a wealth of experience in multiple states and with young and old. Yes, all the ages. So I would say I know with speech pathology, we always call it a lifetime sort of profession, right? That we work with zero years old to the lifespan. And I think that's pretty similar with dietetics. Yes, for sure. Um, And it's similar as well. Um, I feel like in speech therapy, you guys are kind of starting out with the little tiny babes to deal with maybe if they have eating issues and whatnot, all the way up till the end where you know, their issues change, but sometimes they're sort of similar with like swallowing issues and things. Um, and for us, it's, you know, similar and different. The little little kiddos, you're trying to get them to kind of grow um, and follow certain things like growth curves and such. And then at the other end, obviously, you're not trying still to grow a 95-year-old person, but um, they have the issues that kind of correlate with the issues they have um, with speech stuff, like swallowing things. Um, but they tend to 
lose weight as they get older um, they don't eat as well maybe they don't have um, someone to help them with meals or getting food and things like that so we see some issues that develop just strictly related to old age um, which I feel like is similar to what you guys see with older um, adults as well. And you mentioned in your intro there, you spoke about your training and internship. What is, is that requirement? Is that part of your education or is that after you graduate? Yes and yes. So it is, so it's required of every person that wants to be a registered dietitian, um, which means that you're registered th through the Commission of Dietetic Registration, the official CDR, yeah. Um, you are not eligible to apply for an internship until you've finished um, your bachelor's degree. So you have to at least have a bachelor's degree um, that is accredited with that program. You can't just go to like any school and like study some nutrition. You have to have a bachelor's degree that's with a school that's been accredited through that program that says, yes, you've learned everything you've learned to be able to go into the internship program. Um, and the internship programs vary a bit, but I think they're anywhere from like nine months or to a year something in that realm um, and they're all over the country and you basically find out you know kind of look through all the different options that are available and you apply to them um, and they do it's kind of a matching system for lack of a better way to explain it it's similar to the way they match um, for like med schools um, okay. or for like residencies that's a big deal and um, for doctors they do their like match day um, for their residency and it's similar to that where you apply to several and then rank them like here's my top five and then the people who take in the applications they rank their applicants and then based on that they match everybody up um, nationwide so everyone in the country finds out at the same time what internship they've matched with um, and then once they've completed their internship then they're eligible, well, you pass your internship, you're eligible to take the RD exam, the registered dietitian exam. Um, and that's a nationwide exam. So you take that exam and pass it, then you are a registered dietitian with the ability to practice in any state in the United States. Um, and then state by state, certain places require licensure as well. So then there's an additional step to practice in whatever state you live in. That's been a, a recent topic on our podcast for um, reciprocity and for myself moving state by state with licensure, having to reapply. And it sounds like you've done that yourself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Is, is there any compact or reciprocity? I know nursing and I think OT have um, a compact between some states. Does dietetics have that? Not, I'm trying to think of, not any of the states I've lived in. Um, of course not, right? <laughs> Right, I know. Um, and there's actually a couple of states, I think it's either three or four left that don't have licensure for dietitians, um, which seems like, oh, that's a lot easier, um, but actually ends up being more of a pain um, because some companies require licensure. So I um, worked for a company that required licensure while living in a state that didn't have licensure and I actually had to get a license from a different state, which was so bizarre. Um, huh. Really interesting. Like an out of state license. <laughs> it was like a state I'd never lived in. So it was really strange. Um, but yeah, some like national companies that are headquartered in different places, if they're headquartered in a place that has licensure, they usually require all of their RDs to be licensed, even if they're in a non licensure state. So it's like a kind of weird thing. But I'm trying to think if there's any, there, there probably are, but no states that I've lived in have that. 
We do have reciprocity agreements with um, some countries though, which is kind of fun. Basically saying that like the training and stuff that we have gotten here is equivalent to the training um, that they do in their countries. And if I wanted to move there or someone wanted to move from there to the US, their credentials would follow them. They wouldn't have to sit down and take the RD exam. They would still have to get licensed in whatever state they wanted to practice in, but they could use their credentials there. So off the top of my head, um, I want to say it's the UK, Ireland, Australia, I think Canada, maybe, 100% sure on Canada. Um, but there's a few of those, which is kind of cool to, but you could internationally. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd love the opportunity to, to work overseas if it ever happened. Yeah. What is the difference between when someone says nutritionist versus dietitian? or some other name, you know, these health gurus or anything else out there? Yes. Um, someone left me a voicemail recently wanting to talk to the nutritionalist. Nutritionalist, okay. Dietitianalist in the voicemail. And I was like, sir, you're just making up words now. Um, so there's a pretty big difference most of the time. Occasionally people use the words because they don't know the difference. Um, the social worker I work with calls me a nutritionist all the time. And then she realizes that it's wrong and she changes it. But a lot of times it's just people not knowing exactly the right word to use. However, there are lots of people that refer to themselves as a nutritionist. And you will generally not meet a lot of dietitians who would refer to themselves as that. So those people are definitely telling you a different credential. Um, <clears throat> so dietitians all have to be trained in basically the way I said with having the bachelor's degree first and then applying to the internship. Um, a lot of us also have an additional degree, whether it's a master's or a PhD. Um, there is some talk about whether they want to require dietitians starting at a certain year moving forward to all have to have a master's degree before applying to the internship. So that might be, it might be heading in that direction. <clears throat> but um, still, all of that is kind of accredited through the same governing body. And it is... Um, specific in terms of what is taught and what is trained. Um, dietitians work in tons of different areas, um, but we're trained in several different areas. So we do training in hospitals, we do training in community service type of areas, um, such as like I did some training in a senior center, also in a WIC office. Um, we also do training for food service, um, school nutrition, like all of these different areas. Um, whereas, a nutritionist, technically it doesn't, the, ter the term, the title doesn't apply to anything specific. Um, so you can say you're a nutritionist. Um, your child could say he's a nutritionist. Anyone can say they are um, because there's no official sort of thing that decides what it is. There's nobody saying this is what a nutritionist is. It's just a big term, basically. So a lot of times people will maybe get like a certificate or do some kind of like class um, at some place that's like, oh, I took a nutrition class. And then they sort of market themselves as a nutritionist and they want to give out nutrition advice. Um, we're not generally huge fans of that because it can be dangerous. Understandably, um, yeah because people are minimally trained. Um, now, could the average person sit down with someone and be like, hey, you should stop 
eating a bunch of junk food and drinking like gallons of soda a day and maybe you should like exercise. Yes, the average person can give that information. However, we see patients with medical diagnoses and various things that what they do nutritionally could have a huge impact on their health and honestly, as dire as it sounds, living or dying. Um, for example, I had a patient who's on dialysis. Um, when you're on dialysis, your kidneys are not regulating the things that are in your bloodstream correctly. Um, so certain things can go way up or way down um, and they're really dangerous. One of those is potassium. Um, if you eat a lot of potassium, your, your kidneys aren't processing that out. The dialysis machine has to do that, but you still have to be really careful with what you eat. And I had a patient who went to his doctor, his medical doctor, and the doctor said, hey, you should take this multivitamin. This would be a great thing. And it was like a powdery stuff that you added to, I don't know, water. And so fortunately, he brought it to me first before he took it because he thought I should check and make sure this is okay for someone who's on dialysis. And it had so much potassium in it. And I was like, please don't take that. Don't do that. And I actually talked to the doctor and he said, well, vitamins, vitamins are great for everyone. This is a great idea. And I said, but it's not for this person. He's on dialysis. And he said, oh, and he pulled out a notepad <laughs> and he said, who else would this not be good for? Like he's getting ready to write stuff down. And I said, this is the reason that if you're not really trained in this, maybe you shouldn't deal with this because it's not super safe. And that was a, sadly a medical doctor, but that's what we see from, um, nutritionists kind of across the board is that they kind of give out generic information just based on like, Hey, here's some healthy concepts. Like this is healthy in general. So it's healthy for you, but that's not always the case for people. Um, and so it can be kind of dangerous, um, and different states and their licensure laws actually are in place to help curtail that so that people without appropriate training aren't giving out information that can be dangerous to the public. Hmm. Um, and in those states, if someone is doing that, you can actually like, not sue them, but you can kind of like um, report them to the governing body of dietitians or whomever um, is, is in charge of it. Um, in states without licensure, there's sort of no recourse because there's no one overseeing them to make sure they're practicing in a safe manner. So Colorado, where I was for, what, eight years, um, they don't have licensure there. And there's a pretty large number of people who practice as nutritionists there who often fight against the licensure. Um, then they're concerned that the dietitians are going to kind of take their jobs. Um, but we generally don't do anything similar to what they do. So it's kind of a weird thing that has been an ongoing fight for, I don't know, 15 years or so. Um, but it's typically we're trying to make sure that people are getting safe information and they're not going to be made sick from it. Um, and the people who are made sick from it end up coming into the hospital. They don't generally go back to their nutritionist who gave them that information. So we see them when they're sick in the hospital and we are the ones who kind of pick up the pieces and fix it. And it's mm -hmm. frustrating for us because we're not the ones that cause the problem and the ones that cause the problem don't have any repercussions from it. So uh, and that's a, just like you said, a good argument for the importance of licensure. I know as speech pathologists, sometimes we get frustrated too with that licensure piece in different places, but those licenses can also protect us as professionals for our, what our niche and our professional skill set is. Yeah. I mean, the license is in place to protect the professional and also to protect the, the patients. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you guys, I'm sure do 
just like we do, we have continuing education things and we have to keep our registration status current. Like I can't just take my test. What year did I take my test? 2009, took my test and like, that's it. I never learn anything else. If I don't keep up my continuing education, my registration status goes away and I would have to retake my test. Um, I have to keep up on you know, newest developments and research and things like that. So we're continually learning and educating ourselves. Um, and that's a requirement for, you know, every, pretty much every medical profession. Everybody does that. Nurses, doctors, um, speech therapists, physical therapists, everybody has that. Um, but that's something that's good for us as we know that we're, you know, on top of things and, and learning all the, the newest stuff that's coming out. But that's also good for patients and patient care because they know that the most up-to-date evidence-based, you know, research medicine is being practiced with them. So. Hmm. Yeah. And so this, this is a silly question, but I noticed that you write dietitian spelled D-I-E-T-I-T-I-A-N. And I've also seen it spelled with that C. Is there a difference? Yes. One is correct and one is not. Um, okay. Well, <laughs> without, yeah. Tell us which one's correct. So, in the United States, there's no C in it. Um, in other English-speaking countries, the UK, for example, um, they spell it with the C. Here, it's spelled with the T, which I know seems really dumb, and who cares? But um, it actually, that's how it's like trademarked, is with the T. So like in the United States, it's not, it's just technically not spelled that way. Um, okay. So it's really just a location-based. Um, so you as an RD, it is dietitian with two Ts. Yes. 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 And I have had that change. Like I, when I started working um, at a hospital that I worked at in Denver, it was with a C and I asked my boss if she could change it. And she said, well, the last dietitian never mentioned it. And I said, yeah, she noticed it though. She just didn't say anything, but can you change it so that my badge reads correctly? And also I don't want that on my business cards. And so it matches your licensure too. That's important. Exactly. And that's, that's how it is um, written out on, on there. And it's also the like RD, the letters um, and the term it's trademarked um, with the T in it. I, not that anyone would ever be like, oh, you know what? They spelled this wrong in here. So I guess you're not actually falling under this appropriate governing body, but technically speaking, that's what it is. And so I like to make sure that's what it is. Hey, I, I'm okay with that. Words and language have importance. And you want to make sure it matches up. And as a speech pathologist, I hope that anyone listening to that we can make sure that we are writing our referrals correctly too. If we're sending someone to a dietitian, an RD, not a nutritionist. Yes. Um, and whatever dietitian you are sending them to, we'll so appreciate it if you write RD or if you write dietitian out, especially if you spell it with a T. They will be so excited. You'll be. <laughs> I'll win some brownie points with all my yeah. all my dietitians I work with. Um, so on a fun side, what made you want to become a dietitian? <laughs> well, um, I started out my schooling like most dietitians do in civil engineering. <laughs> um, <laughs> Perfect. Because I really liked math and science and both of my grandfathers are engineers and I was like, cool. They seem to love it. One of them, um, worked for companies that worked with NASA to do all kinds of stuff during the space race, which I thought was the coolest thing ever. And I wanted to be cool like him. Um, and so I went to school for that. And my first year um, of undergrad was in civil engineering. 
and I hated it. I liked generally, yes, math and science, but I really hated engineering and I was really sad about it. I was so excited about the concept. And as just a fun like elective, I took a nutrition class, not like one that people were taking who were majoring in foods and nutrition or anything like that. It was just a like, yay, people are taking an elective nutrition class. Um, but a dietitian taught it. And I really, really liked it. And I went and sat down with the counselor people at school and was like, hey, I don't like engineering. Um, what are some other options? And they had me take this little personality test thing that I thought was pretty cool. And at the end, it you know spits out at here's 20 job fields or whatever you would your personality and your interests kind of match with. And dietitian was on that as well. And I was thinking, man. I don't know anything about this. I don't know what these people do, but I am taking a class from one and it's really interesting. And now this is popping up on here. Maybe I should look into it and consider it. And I did. And then I switched over to nutrition. So. And never looked of, back. It was kind of a roundabout weird way to get there. Hey, but you're there and you seem to be enjoying it. Yeah. I, um, I wanted to ask you, have you had a chance in the different settings you've worked in? Have you worked closely with speech pathologists? Yes. Um, kind of depending on where I've worked, that's more or less. Um, in like in dialysis, I don't, I know that we would refer people um, to various therapies, but the dialysis clinics themselves don't have, I mean, none of the, where I worked had it, maybe other places do, but um, we have a dietitian and we have a social worker, but we don't have any like therapies. Um, but I know we would often refer people to them. Um, so not as much there, but definitely in a hospital setting and very, very much in pediatrics. Um, I also worked at, oh, I guess I kind of forgot about this earlier. I worked at um, a nursing home in Colorado Springs where I met Michelle. She wasn't, hey, hey. but um, <laughs> she was living in Colorado Springs. As I, well. I did do some PRN at that nursing home. True, but you weren't living there. You were. This is you were true. That was not my place of residence. <laughs> um. So yeah, I definitely um, worked with them in that capacity. Um. But certainly in the hospitals that I worked at, um, it's been huge. I mean, currently I work in the NICU, um, the neonatal intensive care unit, and I talk with them at least once a day, often more. Um, I text with them a lot. I got a text from one at like 7 p.m. on Thursday and she's, sorry, it's so late. I just have this one quick question for you. Um, so I work with them a ton because we have babies who are born before the age that they're developmentally ready to actually physically eat by mouth. Um, so we have to feed them through a feeding tube most of the time. Um, sometimes we have to feed them through their veins. Um, but we have them um, in the hospital, you know, as they're growing and getting older and they eventually hit the point where they can developmentally understand how to eat. And that's when the um, SLPs step in and start working with them and developing those feeding skills. Um, and they talk to me a lot about their growth. What are we feeding them? Um, because they do a lot of direct feeding with the babies, they'll say, you know, I was feeding him and he was really uncomfortable. He seemed really gassy, like something was going on with his stomach. Do we think we need to change what we're feeding him? Um, Cause they don't determine, you know, what the babies are eating. They're figuring out how 
to best get them to eat. But if they seem like they're really uncomfortable or something when they're eating, then they talk to me a lot about like, what can we change something? What can you do? Or mom's worried about this, or we've noticed this. So we interact a lot um, because those are kind of the two components of what they're eating and how we can actually get them to learn to eat and get them to eat that because that's a requirement of leaving the NICU and going home is that they have to be able to eat and gain weight. Um, so we kind of work together on that basically every day. So. Wow. And have you had any negative experiences working with SLPs? Um, personally, no, I haven't. I have always had great experiences. I've heard occasionally like, oh, this person's pushy or what have you, but no, not really. Um, I have, I think because I've always, um, known like here's my boundary and here's where I need you guys to come in. Um, I have definitely interacted with um, dietitians who I think feel really comfortable with stuff where they feel like, oh, I could deal with certain things like textures of foods or um, consistency of like liquids where they think they can kind of deal with a person um, with that type of thing. Um, I am very, very well aware of the fact that I am in no way trained to do the things that an SLP does. So I'm very comfortable being like, here's my line. I am at it. This is yours. You take this over. Um, so I think generally um, SLPs are happy to, uh, to know that like, I know where my part is and I know where their part is and I'm never trying to cross into that because I don't know how and I don't want to try. Um, so, so you sound like the the ideal multidisciplinary team member, right? That you can part. really yeah, but really feed and help feed off of each other and help each other. Well, and I know that oh, I mean, one, it's outside of my scope of practice. So, like realistically speaking, it's not appropriate for me to try to do something that's in an SLP scope of practice. But two, I know my scope of practice very well, and I know that if I ask an expert to come in and do their scope of practice, it'll be fantastic compared to me like bumbling around and being like, well, I don't know, we could thicken some liquid. I don't know how to do that. I don't want to try and I don't want to be part of it because it's not safe for anyone. What is the, the hardest part of being a dietitian? Ooh, um, I would say it's a little bit variable depending on what you do. Um, generally speaking, um, as a dietitian, you, so I went to school for six years, um, and then I did an internship in addition to that. So you do a lot of training, um, but everyone eats. So everyone is an expert on food. And while that's sort of true in a sense that like, for example, people will say, you know what, for whatever reason, my body doesn't do well with this specific food, so I don't eat it. Cool. You know that about yourself do that. Don't eat it. Or there are certain foods you don't like, whatever. That's fine. Um, but what I find is that because everyone eats, everyone feels that they have a bigger knowledge of food and nutrition than they do. Um, and so there's a lot of us trying to kind of break through all the things that people don't know um, or that they think they know and trying to sort of re-educate. And that's across the board. That includes people in the medical field. Um, who maybe have zero training but are medical experts, so they'll pretend like they have a lot of training. Um, for example, 
physicians. I feel like I'm kind of ragging on physicians. I really like them, but like two bad examples about doctors. But um, doctors, generally speaking, take a nutrition course in medical school um, or none. Some physicians are interested in it and they go out of their way to get more training and find out more information about it. Um, I worked with a lot of really good physicians who kind of similar to myself, know their line and their limit. They know, I don't know anything about this piece. That's why I have this dietitian here. Um, worked with a nephrologist who was amazing about that. As soon as people start asking her nutrition related questions, she was like, great, here's my dietitian. I'm not going to hey, try. And, to and for everyone listening, can you tell us real quick, nephrologist is? Sorry. A kidney doctor. Okay. So um, yes. And the kidneys, the, it's a lot of nutrition related things, but she would never try to answer this question. She would always defer that to me. And if someone would ask me like medication questions, I'm deferring back to her. So it was a good, a good relationship. Um, but there's a lot of physicians who kind of figure, well, food, we all eat it. I know stuff about food. Yeah, I can tell you things about food and I can deal with this nutrition type stuff. So probably the, the thing that frustrates dietitians the most is um, people who are giving nutrition-related information um, to patients who are not qualified to do so. Because if it is incorrect, it's really hard to balance giving the correct information to the patient without sort of undermining their trust in that care provider. Because that person might still be a really great nurse, doctor, whatever it is that they do, but they're not great at sort of dabbling in nutrition. And so you have to kind of find that line between um, hey, sorry they gave you not quite right information, but they're still probably really great at all the other stuff they do, but let me give you the right information. So um, we try really hard to make sure that people are getting information that is accurate um, and that is safe for them in whatever health condition or whatever they have um, while sort of getting rid of the other information that they've gotten that maybe isn't accurate to include things from you know, men's health magazine and um, blogs that people see online. I've had people be like, oh, I read this in this magazine that I should, what? Just some like random journalist. And I, cool, I'm glad they're interested in general health things. And again, like I said, with nutritionist kind of things, like general health stuff, yeah, most people could give out a general health information, but patients that you're seeing at a hospital, they have some type of either chronic illness or acute illness that they need a specific thing for. And so that general health stuff doesn't apply to everyone. And so that's where you're trying to sort of weed out that other stuff and give them the actual information they need. So you spend a lot of time fighting through the weeds as it were, and it's a little bit frustrating. It's a little different in the NICU, but that's kind of the general thing that I would say is most frustrating for dietitians. I, I think a lot of SLPs can empathize with that in some ways, especially in the medical settings of feeling a little bit of that encroachment. I know that's a topic with our national board too, of trying to make sure other professionals know what our lane is and the, uh, where we overlap and where we can support each other. Uh, what is, flip side of the hardest part, what is your favorite part, the thing you that makes you go to work every day? Um, I would say currently, um, I really like working in pediatrics and now I'm working, um, with these tiny babies, which one of the things that they have to do in order to be safe to go home to their parents, um, is that they need to grow and they need to get bigger, um, and be kind of at a safe size to go home. Um, and that's 
my job. So basically I'm taking babies who are born a pound, two pounds, three pounds, um, and getting them to a weight that they're kind of safe to go out into the world. Um, and what's neat about that is that you're kind of at the beginning, um, where you're sort of helping to build up this little person, um, that I, I like doing that because it's a little bit different than when you're dealing with adults, you're sort of doing like disease management and kind of trying to clean up some issues that people maybe have, um, like over the past 50 years, they've developed certain things or chronic conditions or whatever. And with the baby, you're basically starting from scratch and you're kind of making them into this little healthy little being. Um, and it's really, as I said, um, I went into civil engineering cause I really liked, um, math and science. It's really heavy math. I do obscene amounts of calculations a day, which I like doing. Um, my mom always jokes that nobody uses algebra after high school or after college because nobody uses it in their job. I use it about 17 times an hour. So there are magicians too. Um, <laughs> I do so much math. So I get to do this math, but basically, um, you know, studies have been done to figure out exactly what babies of certain sizes and certain ages need. And I figure out how to get them all of those things. So all of the macronutrients and micronutrients that they need to grow correctly and then because they're in the hospital for a long time often and we weigh them every day and we're watching them every single second of every day I can see exactly how it's working and change things if it's not working quite right which most of the time dietitians will make recommendations or changes um, to what a patient's either their diet or kind of what they're doing the regimen and then they, you don't see them, or it takes months for the change to kind of make any impact. But for these tiny little babies, it's like a day or two. And so you can really see the change happening in front of your face, and it's kind of awesome. Um, even like there's certain labs, um, I mean, we follow all their, their lab values, but there's certain lab values that are super important, nutritionally speaking. And, you know, something will be like really high and out of whack. And then I make a change and then it comes back to normal and the doctors are like, Hey, it worked just what you did. And I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. So that part is really cool for me. I really enjoy that. And to see that data and have, you can see the quick changes is pretty amazing. Yeah. And I think probably if you asked some of the other disciplines that work in the NICU as well, they would probably say the same thing. Um, some of our, like our um, SLPs, they work in our NICU and they also work in, um, we have a NICU aftercare clinic. So for babies that were in our NICU with certain kind of diagnoses or certain um, gestational ages that they were born at, they're followed up in the aftercare clinic. So it's actually kind of cool our SLPs see them when they're first born and then later on up until age two. Um, but I know that they'll see them and then maybe they'll see them six months later or something. So they're not kind of following that constant progression. Whereas in the NICU, they get to see day to day how they make progression and how they change. Same with like the physical therapists that are in there. They can see day to day, hey, we did this and now, you know, their head's moving like this and whatever. So I think it's kind of cool for all of us to see the progression of the little changes that we make and how it changes day to day with the baby. It's kind of fun. Now, uh, switching topics just a little bit. I know recent news and speech pathology, especially those who work in feeding or dysphagia, have been talking a lot about the IDDSI, the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative. And have you had any experience with that yet, implementing it in where you're working? I know NICU is a little different. Um, 
Yes, kind of. So I went to, I, oh yeah, I told you about this. I think they sent you some stuff from it, but I went to um, a pediatric nutrition conference in September um, at Chalk Children's, um, which is in Southern California. And they had their SLPs actually give a big talk about it and explained it all, which was super interesting because the majority of people at the conference, there was a few outliers, but it was mostly dietitians. Um, so it was really nice for all of us to see that information and kind of learn about it directly from um, an SLP and also reminded me of, wow, you don't know anything about this. Um, <laughs> this is why you don't deal with this stuff. Um, but I thought it was interesting um, to see how kind of hard they'd work to standardize everything, um, which having the training and stuff that we do as dietitians, um, we do a lot of training in food service, which sounds like a vague term, but a lot of that is generally speaking, um, the like food service department of a kitchen, which is where they would be, you know, they get the order of the patient's diet or liquid needs to be this consistency, but they're the ones that are kind of making it into that. And, um, I've definitely seen at different places like, oh, this is sort of their version of that. They, this is their version of this food consistency or this texture or whatever. Um, and I think it's awesome that someone's thinking, hey, wait, we should probably make this super standardized so that wherever a person goes, it's exactly the same. Um, and safety-wise, I think that's really awesome. Um, it's definitely not something that we're, I mean, our patients in the NICU don't eat food. Um, <laughs> they get breast milk. Fair enough. So it's a little bit different for us and we don't um, like pick in anything in there. But um, I know that in terms of the consistency of it across the board, I think that is something that every dietitian that I've talked to about it, who's either read up on it or been at a presentation about it, was like, oh, this is so awesome that it's, they're standardizing that. And I think it's super smart. Um, and I've told you that my, I've been asked to do a talk about nutrition um, related to um, food textures and consistencies and things. And all I thought was, I wonder if I can get that lady who gave that talk to just come and do the talk for me, because I'm not really an expert on this at all. Um, but I definitely will use the information related to it. I'm talking about the nutrition part of it. But um, I think it's it's really good information for people to have, especially um, the people who are doing the work, the people who are creating food to that consistency or they're um, you know, thickening liquids and stuff. Because a lot of times the people who are actually physically doing that are not people who've had tons of specialized training in it. Mm -hmm. So having something that just tells them this is how it's exactly how it's supposed to be, I think will be beneficial safety-wise in the long run. And hopefully we can use the same terminology because I've experienced that as well, where different settings, dysphagia level one means something different in this hospital versus this sniff. Um, so I, I hope that it can be something, some positive change. And I think it's a great example of that multidisciplinary collaboration between ASHA and who is your, is it dietitian and nutrition or what's it called? called AND Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. There we go. Okay. I'm like, I should know yeah, this. I think, I um, I think that is a good point, though, because the terminology that's used in different places is different. Even if they're referring to the same things, they'll often use different words and different phrases, which is 
confusing, um, but also, yeah, I think standardizing that will be helpful. We noticed that with like different types of diets um, in a hospital, like one hospital calls it this, one hospital calls it that. And I don't mean like texture consistency kind of thing, but like a diabetic diet or a diet for someone with like cardiac disease, like hmm, um, cardiac yeah. disease, that they call them different things or they have different things. Like there's a lot of standardization that I think would be helpful facility to facility. All right. My last question before I wrap up with you has two parts. And if, if you, I mean, you've got an audience of speech pathologists right now on this podcast, right? So what would be one thing that you want SLPs to know about your profession and one thing that SLPs can do to support RDs? Ooh, okay. Um, answer the last one first. I think that um, it depends on the SLP The obviously the ones I work with collaborate a lot with dietitians. Um, but I've definitely met SLPs that don't generally collaborate with dietitians, um, or maybe don't even know where to start to collaborate with a dietitian. Um, like I need to refer someone, but I don't even know where to begin with that. Um, I would encourage them to kind of figure that out, look into that in the area that they're in. Um, because I know people who have worked with an SLP and the SLP said, you know, you really should see a dietitian or they said nutritionist. So that would be important. Always say dietitian. Um, but the, the family doesn't actually know where to turn to, where to look. And so maybe they're kind of looking themselves and they're not necessarily getting someone who is one, an RD or two kind of specialized in their area. So like if you work with pediatrics, um, you should have kind of your go-to person that you would want to, or people that you would want to refer someone to um, or encourage someone to go see so that you know that the person is going to see a dietitian who has experience and training in pediatrics so that you're, they're not just sort of grasping at straws. Say, I know there's, when people are trying to find a dietitian in the community, sometimes they're just sort of not sure where to find them. Um, If you are an SLP and you're looking for like, where would I find a dietitian in my community? Um, The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics website has listings on there. Um, And then also usually state organizations, which are typically the name of the state. And then that like Colorado Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, Arizona Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. It's generally just like the state added on. Um, If you look on their website, they usually have um, people listed on there or like where you can find people. So that's helpful. Um, so that's my answer to that part. I'm trying to think of, ask me the first one again so that I say it right to you. Oh, that's okay. Um, what would be one thing that you want SLPs to know about dietitians? it's hard because all the SLPs I work with are really awesome. Um, and like collaborating with the dietitians that work with them. Um, but I guess the thing that I would most recommend would be, um, one, I'm sorry if you've worked with a dietitian that has overstepped his or her bounds into SLP world, because I swear that we don't all do that. And I apologize for that. Um, if anyone has, but two, we apologize for any SLPs <laughs> if they've overstepped it too. 
Good. I'm glad we cleared the air on that. Um, <laughs> but to, um, I've definitely, because outside of my professional world, um, I know several SLPs, um, and I know that they have um, at times felt sort of frustrated in the sense that they felt like they had to sort of do both things. Like they're trying to figure out how to get a patient, like how this patient can eat, but they're also trying to figure out, you know, what they can eat or what they should eat or how much they should eat or how much, if it's a child, like how much they should be growing or they're, they're kind of trying to um, do parts of a dietitian's job, maybe not necessarily like on purpose, but because they're being asked that in their, in their job um, or the family is asking them that or something along those lines. Um, so my thought on that would be use your, use your resources. Like don't um, feel like you have to, <laughs> do a dietitian's job um or be part of that even if where you work doesn't have a dietitian um i would either reach out um i've gotten calls from people that i don't work with <coughs> michelle um asking questions about patients um like you know i have a patient that's this age and this size how much should they be growing or i have a child of this you know just asking questions like that um you know kind of use your resources and reach out to those things um dietitians are happy to help with that because it's it takes two seconds for me to tell someone this is how much a child of this age and this size should be eating or how much they should be growing and, and that information that's going to take you a really long time to find um so don't feel like you can't reach out to someone um and if it seems like you're being asked over and over and over again to do something that a dietitian should be doing or something that you're like i'm not really trained in this um yeah, maybe you guys do need a dietitian or you need to talk with your supervisor about, you know, your scope of practice and your comfort level um, in doing things that are kind of outside of that and make your life a little easier, not trying to do things that you really don't need to be doing. Then <laughs> uh, asking questions, right? The ask for help when we need it and, yes. and know what our, our skill set is. Yes, for sure. I was recently asked to tell um, the physician what type of food, long, confusing story, but um, this baby should have. And I said, I can tell you what food. I cannot tell you the consistency of that food. I don't know what is safest for her to swallow at this juncture, at this age of her life. And the doctor looked at me like I was insane. And I said, um, I will talk to Danielle. That's one of our speech therapists. And she, I said, I will tell her the type of food and then she has to take it from there because I don't know what is safe for this baby to swallow. And I am not going to even pretend to try to get a baby who has cystic fibrosis <laughs> um, to not maybe to give her something that she would could potentially aspirate into her lungs and get a lung infection from, which if you know anything about cystic fibrosis, that's going to be the story of her life. She's going to have a ton of lung infections and I'm so not going to be the person that starts with that. But the doctor looked at me like I was crazy, but I was super firm and that I did not want to be the person that determined what was going into that baby's mouth, the consistency, because I am not trained in that and I do not know the appropriate thing for the baby of that age. And I immediately called the SLP and was like, cool, this is the food. You figure out how to get it in her because I don't want to be part of that because I'm not comfortable with that and it's outside of my scope of practice and she was perfect and took over and everything was awesome 
Um, and she actually did that feed to make sure that it was the right consistency and all that kind of stuff and that she could safely swallow it. But um, I feel like sometimes people think, oh, well, the doctor's asking me to do this thing. So I guess I have to do it. And I was having none of that because I did not want to be <laughs> the one to, to put up with that. But it was nice to know that there was someone who could do that and that I didn't have to try to finagle it and figure it out in a way that would probably be unsafe because I don't know anything about that. Well, Martha, first of all, I have very much enjoyed uh, speaking to you and, and learning from your expertise too. I think it's a great lesson for us as speech pathologists to to learn from our kind of neighbor professions and um, people that we're going to share offices or hallways or hospitals with and share patients with in various settings. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me and, and answer all my questions. Certainly, anytime. Martha Firstall, who is a registered dietitian in Tucson, Arizona. So thank you, Martha. Thank you. Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm the guy that does no sticker charts and doesn't like playing games. I'm Matt Hot, joined by one of the hardest working SLPs I know, Michelle Wintering. I love sticker charts and games. Yeah, I figured you <laughs> did. And the guy that I would want to be doing my speech therapy when I need it, Michael McLeod. Oh, that was very sweet of you. Oh, yeah, I, I assumed that you wouldn't a, leave that me. That was a pretty good uh, yeah. intro. That was nice. That was nice. I assumed he wouldn't leave me plugged in front of the TV. That's why I said that. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Hey, guys, question for you. How important is vocabulary to learning? So important. <laughs> Essential. I, I figured, I thought we talked about this before, the importance of classroom vocabulary. Have we not? Of course we have. Okay. I'm well, sure we have. The last vocab, really, we talked about was reading-based, you know, uh, what their vocabulary what is. is, right? The word gap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this one is a journal out of, uh, I'm sorry, this is an article out, or a, a study, I should say, out of the Journal of Speech, Language, and Hearing Research. It's by Hillary Lowe, Lucy Henry, and Victoria L. Jaffe. It's the, effective, the Effectiveness of Classroom Vocabulary Intervention for Adolescents with Language Disorder. This is one of those studies where you tuck it in the back pocket and you show your teachers why you're doing push-in therapy on vocabulary skills. Uh, they looked at the experimental interventions, uh, and they saw improvement in the classroom if they target that classroom uh, vocabulary. And I believe we've talked about this before, the importance of hitting certain types of vocabulary versus uh, limited meaning words. Am I right? Yes, yes, you are definitely right about that. Uh, really what this article really uh, showed me was a lot of the students that I work with uh, in terms of vocabulary is w when they'll be in the classroom uh, during a lesson or even during a social communication with a peer, uh, when a word comes up that they don't understand, if they hear a word, they don't know the definition of it, they don't know the meaning of the word, uh, they can tend to get lost in the conversation and get uh, hyper-focused on that word. And that's when uh, anxiety and uh, basically uncomfortness tend to increase. And that really decreases their ability to learn and their ability to function in an educational environment when their uh, anxiety is increasing because they're so hyper-focused on what is this word? Why don't I know it? Why am I so stupid? 
And I think it, it ties right into what we've discussed before on just the importance of exposure. You know, you're talking about them hearing these words and hearing them in different formats and formally and informal informally so they compared what the 10 words taught through usual teaching practice mm -hmm. which i kind of want to know what they mean by that um, a little better so that's probably defined further in the article but um, and then 10 other words taught using this experimental intervention that embedded phonological semantic activity so basically what we do as speech pathologists and be so yeah and besides uh, social communication, there's only so many uh, varied vocabulary you're going to hear by having an informal conversation with a peer. There's only so much you're going to hear in terms of, you know, this is not Dawson's Creek where people talk like they're on the huh. SATs. So it's like it's there's only so much you're going to get from that. And how do you learn varied vocabulary, expansive vocabulary? It's most likely it's through reading. And it, that's a lot of what our generation mm -hmm. did was reading books and uh, being exposed to vocabulary, reading it and understanding it in context. But I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that today's generation is reading less and less and less. Uh, so, and especially the population that is qualifying and is enrolled in speech therapy. I, uh, I highly doubt uh, the majority of them are reading independently on their own for pleasure. Uh, so they're not exposed to this varied vocabulary that they can use in social contexts. So when the therapist uh, decides to push in or focus on vocabulary goals, they are remedying this issue by teaching them this vocabulary that otherwise they're simply not exposed to. So you were asking about the teacher strategies. The top four, uh, they looked at the 27 different teachers and they ranked the top, you know, top however they looked at them. Uh, the top four most frequently used strategies reported by the teachers were definition games, spelling, practical demonstration or experiments, and then they gave the definitions. Um, and then the most frequently used strategies noted in lesson observations. So this is what it was observed, not what teacher reported. Uh, they list the keywords on the board, gave them de definitions, and then give definitions through paraphrasing, and then having the teacher or the student repeat it multiple times before going into the reading. Um, the experimental intervention looked at a self-rating checklist. So the students uh, looked at how well they understood the vocabulary, uh, then a visual image displayed with the written word, and then some word detective games were played. A word map was created. And then WordWise Quickie, this is a short verbal activity in which students are given a word. They think of a meaning and think of a sound and use the word in a sentence. And then finally, a sound and meaning bingo, and then a keyword sheet. So it seems like you got a lot more variety mm -hmm. in that phonological base one and you're tying in the phonological side not just teaching the definition in the word or the spelling so, so this goes oh i'm sorry michelle no but i i think it's really important because it's tying in reading you know it's not just tying in the sight word part that mm -hmm. we hear that debate too of this push for teaching sight words versus phonological based reading and i know that's a whole nother discussion but it seems like they kind of touched on that a little bit without meaning to I wish I remembered where I heard this. I was either at an Ohio Speech Language Hearing Association or an Ohio School OSpeak uh, meeting, but a presenter talked about how typical students need seven unique opportunities to learn a new vocabulary word. And our students that have disabilities may need 10 to 20 times that amount. So if a typical student needs seven 
unique opportunities. Uh, a student with a language development or a, or a language uh, deficit or delay might need 70 to 140 unique opportunities with that word to use it and generalize it into other areas. And, and that kind of makes sense with this study where they looked at, you know, seven different experimental interventions. Huh. That, that number seven always seems to come up with things. I remember back in... I think it was Girl Scouts learning about trails, how trails are developed, that it takes seven plus times of huh. walking the same path to start to get that defined trail, which is kind of like, I guess we're creating that habit for people with learning a new skill, right? A new synapse. Yeah. Mike, have you ever heard that seven number before? I have not, no. See, I wish I knew who I did the study for. I've looked for it multiple times to try to get the research or the evidence to, ba to back up my claim. And I can't find that, that seven anywhere because I learned it when I was a new SLP eight years ago. When your brain was being overloaded. Yeah. Oh, we want to hear from you. What do you think of vocabulary? How do you handle the vocabulary? Uh, head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com uh, or email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com or give us a phone call 614-681-1700. Nine eight or text text six one four six eight one one seven nine eight. I think the next person that texts us, I am going to call them on air. You should, you unless should that sounds like a threat, then don't do that. If that sounds like a threat, I won't do that to you, guys. <laughs> I have a very cool story here, but I want to ask you a question, a serious question. So you've already read the article. Don't use what's in this article. If you knew you were going to lose your hearing what would be the last voice or who would you want to hear before you lose your hearing for good? Wow. That's My good, son. That's a good question. Aww. That's a good one. Michelle says her son. I think I'd want my wife. Okay. I would have, I love my boys, but I would want my wife. She, she motivates me. I'd have to go with the same. Your wife. Yours. Oh, my wife? <laughs> <laughs> no, mine. Matt Hot. <laughs> my voice. Yeah. Anyone want my voice as the last one? Well, this is a really cool story. Uh, San Diego Comic-Con happened uh, just about a week and a half ago. And if you don't know what San Diego Comic-Con is, I forgive you for not being a giant nerd. Uh, it is the epic, epic epicenter of the nerdum in um, the world. I was going to say America, but it's the world where TV shows and movies announce uh, what's coming up for the next year. Marvel announced the next 10 movies. You get to meet your actors. And there was a little show that was super important to me as a kid was the Batman, the animated series. Did you guys ever watch this? I have. Yes, of course I have. The animated series. I believe I did a little bit with my brothers. Yeah, the Joker was Mark Hamill from yes. uh, star so Wars. Oh yeah. But the voice of Batman is a man named Kevin Conroy, and he did a really cool interview I listened to about five years ago where he talked about Batman was the true person and Bruce Wayne was the mask to cover up the pain that created Batman. So Kevin Conroy is one of the greatest voice actors. Well, a man came up to him at San Diego Comic-Con. And Kevin says in the story that we're going to have the link up in our, our show notes that he was leaving and he made eye contact with this man and he decided he was going to go over and, and shake this man's hand and give this man a hug. And his publisher was like, don't do that. Like, what are you doing? And so Kevin walks over 
and he starts to realize that the guy's like waving his hands and trying to get his like friend over who he thinks is his friend. And Kevin very quickly realizes that the person with him is not a friend. It's the interpreter. And he finally realizes that this guy is deaf. So Kevin's like, how does a deaf guy know me as a voice actor? And he hugged the guy and the guy shook his hand and put a, a letter in his hand. And Kevin went back to the hotel room and read it. And this man lost his hearing as a child. And the last voice he has in his head is Kevin Conroy as Batman telling him not to give up. I guess in one of the episodes, Batman was talking about not giving up and fighting through everything. And this man for the last 20 years or so has had Batman's voice in his head telling him not to give up. And now this guy watches the Batman, the animated series uh, with his son. And that's beautiful. That is such a cool moment that, that he was able to meet Batman and, tell him this through a letter uh and on twitter kevin conroy was super excited because i guess somebody else took a picture of that and the guy tweeted it to kevin conroy uh their hug and he says he's got a letter for mark hamill as well um to give him as well so that is so cool the last voice he has in his head is batman i love that they were able to connect because that doesn't mm -hmm. always happen no a story like that so I don't know. That is just I, I figured that would be a fun uplifting story for tonight. I like it. Plus it included San Diego Comic Con and my favorite version of Batman, so I can't lose when it comes to this. Hey guys, guess what we did? We did a whole episode. We did episode 85. It is in the books. We are a high school kid with a learner permit away from being episode number one hundred. Oh, <laughs> Now I got to bleep something out. <laughs> you can keep it. It's cool. Nah, I'm bleeping it. I'm keep keeping it. this in too. Keep it. Guys, what are you doing this week? It is the, when we're recording this, this is July 30th. School starts up soon. What is going on with you all? Just working. Working as always. Yeah. I mean, working here and getting some family time in and we've got some visitors coming this weekend. Uh, to come visit us in Kentucky, high school friends nice. of mine. So that will be fun. Uh, I am doing some experiments with my boys this week that I promised that I would do earlier this summer, and we just never got around to it because we've been doing other goofy stuff. But I am going to teach my son how to suck a hard-boiled egg into a glass bottle of Coke. I am going to teach both my sons what happens when you mix Diet Coke and Mentos and Pepsi and awesome. a couple other things. And, and wait, have, when you looked at me like that, have you ever done the uh, hard-boiled egg into a bottle of Coke? I have not. Michael? Nope. All right, so what you do, take a hard-boiled egg, de-shell it. Then take a match and drop the match into the bottle. It has to be empty, by the way. The glass bottle is cooler, but you can do it with a two-liter. And then you put the egg on top while the match is burning. As the match is burning up the oxygen, it's going to suck the egg into the pop bottle. And then when it burns out, the egg should right into the bottom of the bottle. Wow. Is, it is a really cool experiment because you get to play with fire in a controlled way. And you get to see an egg get sucked into a bottle. It is so cool. One of my yeah. favorites was lighting. Uh, like I had a teacher do the with money, like a dollar bill. They did it with a $20 bill, actually. But you soak it in rubbing alcohol. And then when you 
light it on fire, the alcohol burns off and the dollar's fine. I would not do that. That sounds scary. (laughs) Mike, what's your favorite experiment? Uh, That's a good one. Um, I saw one recently where I think they took like a something with a battery where they do something with water and then they put a fork in the water and then as soon as the fork is in the water it bends. What? I can't think of what I can't think of exactly what it takes. I'll find it. Okay. I'll look I'll look it up. Okay. I'll look it up. All right, any listeners who have some good science experience. Yeah. Send what do them you our do way. With Hashtag your, your SSPod. Yeah, let's find those out. Put those on the Instagram. Everybody else, we want to hear from you as well. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com, and email us, speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com, or give us a phone call, 614-681-1798. Selling ahead, uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks, we got Kathy Hoffman, which is the Arizona State Superintendent and former uh, or current, I guess, SLP. Also, I got the author of Sloths Are Slow to sit down with me this week, and we talked about her book, so that'll be coming up as well. And she as, is an SLP. She is an, an SLP. And <laughs> also, I talked to the two rare mama bears who host their own uh, podcast about uh, CMD, cognitive, uh, congenital muscular dystrophy. So those are all coming up. It's a pretty cool lineup. Our opening music, as always... It's Please Listen Carefully by Jazar. It's licensed under an attribution and share alike license. Our bump music is the County Fair Rock. Copyright at John Deku. We still appreciate it. You find his music at soundcloud.com slash dirtdogmusic. And our closing music tonight, Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod is licensed under a Creative Commons and attribution license. If you've got something you want us to talk about, send it to us. We will talk about it on there. Make sure you rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us find advertisers so we can keep bringing you the show we love it we love you but we got bills to pay lights to sleep on we like that kind of stuff right oh yeah yep. right all right in the immortal words of janice Wright, always be a willow because when the life a storm of life threatens you you might think you want to be the big oak but the oak will crack under pressure the willow will bend i've got one out front and it always stays upright it comes right back to form for michelle wintering and wait did i say wintering michelle michelle wintering you got it oh my brain broke halfway into that sense for michelle wintering and michael mcleod i'm matt hot saying so long everybody bye halfway into my moment i was like wintering winters winter what did i do broke This has been an Exceptional Podcast Network production. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. For more original podcasts, please visit ExceptionalEd.com and rate and subscribe to our podcasts anywhere you get your podcasts.